The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I'm your new mayor. Who are you guys? Fred. Carrie. Are you guys city officials? We're friends of the, of the mayor. What's this ball? Oh, that's a chair. They told me the mayor went nuts. My suggestion is you don't use, don't say nuts. I think our hope is that our mayor will be able to come back. What happened to the guy? This is him right here. That's a book he wrote. Oh, that's why he's sitting on the ball. He's doing the core work. Yeah. A lot of people talk about their core all the time, you know. I mm -hmm. just don't want an unhealthy mayor with no core, that's for damn sure. Yeah. So you, you've been all over the country, like uh, sort of on call everywhere. This is my first interim mayor kind of position. Uh -huh. I'm just hoping that it will really work out to be something for me. You know, but I mean, of course, I just want to do a good job for this city. Well, have, have you ever been here before? Have you ever been to Portland? No, I've never oh. been to Portland. Would you mind taking me out so I could get a feel for the city? Yeah. yeah. All right, well, Ready? you mind going now? Uh, all right. Let's tackle this mess. There's no mess, really. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 20th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. You may recall on last week's broadcast that our guest was Amir Farahi of the London Institute and our topic of discussion was the very controversial plan of the City of London to spend well over half a billion dollars on a bus rapid transit system referred to as SHIFT or BRT. But today we'll be expanding that discussion to a much more global perspective, a perspective that I hope you will find to be of great value in your own considerations of how your own local city or municipality may be planned and how it will fare in the future. This is a life-affecting issue in ways that most of us do not even consciously think about, and that's what we are going to be doing today, thinking about that very issue. From Portland to Vancouver to San Antonio to New York City and municipalities in Florida and even European cities, we'll be learning about the ideas that have been proven to work, and by that meaning that nature and man coexist in perfect harmony without one fearing the other, so to speak. So if you're anything like me, what you'll hear today on the show will be both an epiphany and seem self-evident at the same time. But before we begin, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Now, if you're not living in the city of London, it might be difficult to explain just how huge and affecting the city's proposed bus transit uh, system, referred to as BRT, has become as a political hot potato in the city. This is huge. So big, in fact, that the next meeting to be held on the issue will be held at the Budweiser Gardens on Wednesday, May the 3rd. This follows on the heels of the last meeting held at the Central Library on April 13th that was packed to capacity with the vast majority of attendees completely opposed to the idea of BRT coming to the city. 
And, you know, some of the letters to the editor of London Free Press are indicative of most views. Says Beth M. in her letter of April 15th, quote, In a nutshell, property taxes skyrocket, Richmond Row ceases to exist, but all is well as we say four minutes in travel time. <laughs> Writes Jim P. on the same day. London seems hell-bent to emulate Toronto in its efforts to be grandiose, while not realizing its uniqueness. Londoners are blinded by the necessity of getting to Toronto as fast as we can, while the reality is Toronto is an overburdened colossus, end quote. Now, both of these observations have hit the nail on the head, I think, when it comes to describing the problem in a nutshell. But what's the ultimate cause of the problem, and what's the solution? That's the theme we'll be introducing right after a quick review of some of the Facebook comments we received about last week's show on BRT with Amir Farahi. This one from Clinton TJ. Too expensive, not required, and still no service to industry area where the workforce goes. No service after 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. if workers work shifts. No service to where people live. Only 6% of Londoners use this ineffective system and spending what is likely to be well over $600 million is a complete waste of taxpayer money and will not improve anything. That's the bottom line. Ken F. and all the blind mice gathered together and said, no BRT for us. We love our cars. We do not care about the future. We do not like change. Leave our city as it is so it can become a retirement center. But will we still have our cars to drive around and share old memories of what was a city with a bright future? Yep, sounds good to me. Where can I sign up? (laughs) Well, Ken's comments are once again illustrative of what I would have to say is a non-critical and shoot-the-messenger kind of rationalization that seems to come from supporters of the BRT. He's basically morally condemned those opposed to BRT as being people who do not care about the future and who do not like change. And he's so wrong about this, he's not even just wrong. Well, I hope Ken's listening today because he's going to get an earful about that, not from me. If anyone's blind... It is the folks like Ken who offer no insight whatever to what they see as desirable about BRT. I can can hear from his comments that he sees the love of cars as being some kind of threat to the future, which is simply not so. Uh, Unless, of course, our city planners continue to pull off stunts like the BRT, and then he would have reason to be concerned. Finally, this one, a very interesting posting, and this came from Ted Harlson, whose name I mentioned because he is a Freedom Party person, and I happen to know him, and he was involved in this very issue in the city of Brampton, and he writes, and listen to this, Brampton leads the way. Some of the citizens' argument points were, and they defeated the proposed similar plan in their city, They complained about construction congestion, high tax cost, environmental issues. The engineering didn't justify the rail. The streets were too narrow. Property rights were violated. The proposed uh, ridership estimate was far too high. It was not cost effective. It would be subsidized. It was ill-thought. It was rushed. It was undemocratic. Does all this sound familiar? All of this happened in Brampton, and he writes, A prolonged and growing revolt climaxed with a municipal meeting of council and citizens. This was proof that the proposal was failing. The rail initiative was rightfully voted down. Citizens for a better Brampton, with freedom of information requests, went after the rail proposals and continuously questioned lack of preparation of the subway plans. 
The political pressure left city council divided and split. Brampton citizens won shooting down their massive $1.6 billion white elephant, telling the province to take their billion and shove it. I was proud to be at this loud yelling and turning point in munici- at, a, at a municipal general meeting. I was proud to be a voice against the bully rail ta- uh, politics. I still call for the, the transport minister Del Duca's resignation, t- writes Ted. And then he added a postscript. Stopping the proposed ridiculous big move into Brampton was not the end. After the costly subway push that failed, the citizens of Brampton voted out most of the former council members and mayor. With organization, your city can do the same, he writes. Now that last comment should be an eye-opener for each and every Londoner. It's very encouraging uh, you know, to hear that, you know, for those who are high, hardwired to the notion that there's nothing you can do to stop the BRT in its non-tracks. So after listening to all of this, and again after listening to our own broadcast last week, it suddenly struck me that this conversation needs to be expanded beyond the immediate concern about transit and the local concern to the greater issue of why. This has become such a big problem in the first place. We're not alone to experience this issue. This is being experienced across North America and around the world. It's a problem that every city in the world has had to deal with, and some with great success, and some not so. You may recall last week that Robert Vaughn made it clear that he personally had no problem with the idea of rapid transit as long as it occurred naturally and not in the forced manner that's currently being presented to Londoners at taxpayer expense. Now, it was clear by some of the conversation and debate on this issue that very few people seem to have any concept of really what natural municipal growth is all about. And I have to confess that even in my own mind, I really only had a vague idea of how that would manifest itself under the proper principles of municipal growth. So shortly after bringing up the issue of natural municipal growth, Robert reminded us about a fellow named Andres Duani. We discussed the ideas of Andres Duani with then-mayoralty candidate and local infill builder uh, Arnon Kaplansky on Just Right number 358, broadcast on July 10th, 2014, which will illustrate for you some of the personal and local nightmares faced by developers and builders in this city when dealing with uh, municipal planners and codes here in the City of London. Well, I went online over the past week or so and literally spent hours and hours listening to the various presentations you may find online by Andres Duani, who as a successful builder and municipal planner has been sought out by cities and institutions everywhere. Robert and I first learned of him when he spoke here in Ontario, under the auspices of the Ontario government, I believe it was. But all of the selections I've chosen for today's broadcast came from two of Duani's presentations, which can be seen on YouTube, and I hardly recommend that you do so. You will not be bored, even though the thought of municipal planning sounds about as dry as a picnic on the dark side of the moon, if you know what I mean. Uh, Those two selections were from Rethinking Suburban Sprawl, which was originally recorded on November 1st, 2006 as part of a lecture given in San Antonio, Texas to planners there in that city. And the other one is called On the Edge, the latest views from Andres Duani. It's a two-hour presentation that was given at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia on January 16th, 2008. 
I found both of these presentations to be excellent, informative, and entertaining all at the same time. I have to warn you, though, that given the volume I had to select from, the audio bites that you'll be hearing on the show today have been extremely edited basically down to his conclusions and you know, to overall descriptions of his thinking about urban planning. There's a lot of you know, expl- um, examples and stuff, but still down to those basics. You'll also hear him from time to time referring to a particular picture or image that may be part of the presentation. In most cases, many of those images were actually off screen, even if you watch them on YouTube, but, but a lot weren't. But Duani does a great job of describing each image and, that, and what's wrong and right with them. And in so doing, I don't think you'll have any trouble creating those images in your own mind as well. It was also great to have both an American and a Canadian presentation to pick from because I happened to find this opening gem buried right in the middle somewhere of his presentation given in Vancouver about the key differences in the way Canada and the United States approach the issue of municipal planning and public transit. Let's listen in. Now let's talk about codes. I do, you are here in Canada you are of the British tradition in which planning is actually negotiated. You know, the developer comes in, there's an elite bureaucracy that discusses with the developer what is to be done. That is very different from the American system. The American system is based on codes. We have rules, okay? And if you follow the rules, you can go ahead and build without further discussion. You only have to come discuss when you want a variance. If you don't like the rules, then by all means, you have to come in and discuss and get voted upon. But it is, it is, a, it is not an empirical system. It is a rational system based on laws. They're surprisingly different uh, traditions. They each have advantages and disadvantages. The advantage of the American system is that it's much more efficient. You know, you really can't be held up if you follow the code. The advantage, the disadvantage, is that it's extremely rigid and you have to do it the way you are. And it takes a lot of creativity away. So that's the system. The disadvantage of the Anglo-Canadian system with all the negotiations is that if in fact you have an elite bureaucracy, like, and I believe your planners in Vancouver here for three generations have been absolute elite. The present one and the two past ones, which is the main reason you have a a really marvelous city, and a certain amount of courage from your elected officials, obviously, uh, that's, that's a prerequisite also. But that negotiation also works very well. It just happens to be fantastically inefficient, which is one of the reasons you have a housing shortage and such hideously expensive housing. There is the idea that somehow if growth were better planned, it would all come out right. That is not the case, because there's an awful lot of good planning that has been going on in the Sun Belt. For example, this is a community somewhere in the southwest, a so-called planned community, which you can see is uh, the kind of place that uh, planners with codes this thick have been zealously administering. Uh, We have these when we have had these in Dade County and around Orlando for 20 years. But in fact, growth has choked just as if there had been no planning. 
The problem is not that growth itself is bad, but that the pattern of growth, if this is the pattern of growth which is selected, it cannot be sustained in the long term and it will, it will close down, in fact, your, uh, your system and it will close down your development community. What does this pattern consist of? The pattern is, which I'm going to call throughout this, uh, this talk today, suburban sprawl, is an extremely simple organism. It consists of just four components. It consists of housing clusters, like this one. It consists of shopping centers, of office parks, and it consists of the meeting places that we have, our schools and uh, post offices and city halls and so forth, like this one, which are usually assembled at the, er at the end of a collector street in something called a pod. When you, when you put elements like these, at, at, uh, single-use elements at the ends of collector streets, ultimately what chokes growth is, is, is traffic. It cannot be sustained. This system of planning by pods has attached to it uh, a, a segregation by income. Everybody that lives in this pod has paid over $350,000 for their unit. Everybody that lives in this pod has paid about two hundred and fifty dollars or less for their unit. And everybody that lives in this pod, which is quadruplexes, has paid $100,000 for their unit. What has happened in our suburbs is that for marketing reasons, and which I believe are completely artificial, this, this element of snobbism, which is, which is pushed, which is, if you live in here, you're better than everyone else that lives outside. And if you live here, you're better than everyone else. And it sort of pecks on, you know, there's a pecking order all the way down. If you were to offer to build a, a $250,000 house here on this empty lot, this homeowners association would have a major fit because the real estate prices are going out. What has been happening is that people are now have a great fear of anybody who isn't exactly their income. We're not talking about bringing the homeless in, you know, from, 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 from downtown Palm Beach. It's someone who has a quarter of a million dollars to buy a house not being permitted to build there. That is completely insidious. The amount, the kind of political fragmentation that is taking place in the suburbs, the dislike and suspicion that people have for each other is making it virtually impossible to go govern intelligently. And that's being built into this system and it's completely unnecessary. Look at the old system, uh, the, the, basically the American system. This is Georgetown. On this street, you have apartment buildings on both sides of the street, which is to say quite affordable housing. Over on this street, you have townhouses facing each other, which is to say relatively more, more expensive housing. Then on this street, you have big houses, which is to say quite expensive housing. And finally, here on this estate, probably one of the great famous fortunes of America living in splendid, in, you know, in splendid quarters, all within a very, very short uh, distance from each other and all sharing the same public realm. This is the way we used to do it. Now, what's interesting or rather important about mixed-use planning is that it is not just important to have workplaces and shopping places and living places. It is equally important to have a range of incomes living together. Because if you don't, you have to begin importing people of different incomes to work for each other. And there's another thing that's important. It isn't just important to have the lower economic classes integrated into the upper. It is equally important to have extremely wealthy people distributed among the neighborhoods and villages. 
that can be seen all over the Midwest and all over the, North, the Northwest. There are two types of small towns in America. Those that have one wealthy family and those that don't. The ones who don't have that wealthy family have no culture. They're just dead ends. Those towns that have the good fortune of having had one tycoon, one factory owner has, those are the ones that have the beautiful parks and the museums and the, spe and the cultural activities. It is necessary when you have to have a full society with, uh, with, cultural, with a cultural component that there be people of wealth and leisure integrated into the rest of society. Because everyone else is working too hard and doesn't have enough money to actually pursue culture. Only the very wealthy can. So it's important to build all of these things together. Not, it's not only in the United States that you find that this is, the, this is the traditional pattern. In Europe, the great dukes, the popes, and so forth, any European city that you see has the palaces next to very humble artisans' dwellings. All societies have been able to integrate by income. They have not been able to integrate foreigners necessarily. There are Turkish quarters and there are Jewish quarters in Europe. But by income, yes, because it is necessary and intelligent, in fact, to integrate by income. This, these streets here are all small and they're all complex. Traffic flows slowly in them. This street is a very simple street. It's really a highway. It's, it's a very simple street. Only one thing happens here. The only thing that happens here is that cars flow. Pedestrians don't, trees don't exist, buildings don't align this street. It's only for cars. The public realm is only for cars in this model. Here, the public realm contains not only cars that move, but cars that park, trees on the s sidewalks and buildings. It's a public realm which is, because it's complex, is friendly to both cars and pedestrians. How is this achieved? It's achieved because it's a network of streets, you see. There are many, many different ways of getting from anywhere to anywhere else. As a result of that, no one street has to be large. This system, which is a system of collector streets, has very few streets that are active because the pods feed into collectors and the collectors feed onto highways. So all of these have to be very large because very few streets are actually through streets. That's how you can get an entirely different, that's how you can get the sort of the miraculous feel of traffic flowing slowly and being friendly to pedestrians because there are many, many different ways uh, to do it. What has happened in the United States is that traffic engineering standards, which used to have a full range from 15 miles an hour to 85 or God knows 100 miles an hour, each, tra each speed having a whole series of geometrical requirements, centerline radii, curb radii, and so forth. Back in the 1950s or 60s, the whole bottom end of the manual was removed. And we no longer can design streets that are less than 35 miles an hour. That is the fundamental problem that is happening here. And in fact, the push is now still in the other direction. In Miami now, the Public Works Department is proposing 40-foot right-of-ways, which means you can do that easily at 40 miles an hour, perhaps even at 50 for a decent driver. What does 50-mile-an-hour turns have to do with a residential neighborhood? What's happening is that the traffic engineers are considered the solution to our traffic problems, the only solution to our traffic problems, and they're being given an absolutely free hand to make the traffic flow as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible at the expense of other issues such as public life. If any single statement were to summarize the dilemma faced by London, Ontario, it is that last one. The idea that traffic 
which to some planners seems to mean the movement of people without cars only, must be moved about quickly and efficiently as the solution to the car problem. The greater question, of course, is why do so many people have to be moved so far in the first place? What's causing that problem? And of course, Duwani would argue that it's bad public planning. Now, I've heard the downtown merchants operating under their banner of Downshift London refer to the loss of their intrinsic value of the downtown, you know, that je ne sais quoi uh, quality, which is another way of saying that you'll lose that sense of public life, which is what is being systematically destroyed by so many municipal planners. I guess part of the problem is, um, you know, these planners being hammers <laughs> see everything as being a nail, and they're out to nail us good to the tune of billions because each of those dollars is representative of the real nails that they want to hammer <laughs> and the taxpayer funding is what it is being offered by Queen's Park in Ottawa. Got this article here taken from the London Free Press on April 15th by Chip Martin. Proposed tunnel a disaster waiting to happen wherein he cites and and references Bill Fellner, who, of course, is an engineer in the city, retired engineer. Bill Fellner established development engineering in 1968 and today is one of London's leading engineering firms. We would be the laughingstock of the country if we did this, says the now-retired engineer, who knows much about the unstable beach sand through which the tunnel would pass. I don't know who came up with this idea, but it certainly wouldn't be engineers who are knowledgeable in tunnel construction, he says. It's probably a planning pipe dream. And Fellner is echoed by Lori Parsons, a longtime project manager for Alliston Construction, which ironically is a partner in a $1.8 billion light rail transit system being built in Ottawa. And he says, quote, it's a disaster waiting to happen. This is such an amateurish approach to the project, end quote, with so little planning. And Fellner says that London cannot carry a failure of this size. A reality check is desperately needed. He laments engineering concerns have been largely ignored. And he says, you know, Cheryl Miller is right. This isn't a bus issue. It's a social engineering issue, <laughs> end quote. And then there's this little piece that really irked me from the London Free Press of March 20th with the heading, Transit Study Predicts Hurdles, okay? And it's written by Patrick Maloney. Quote, the study by the Calgary-based Pembina Institute examined rapid transit rollouts in Waterloo where construction of a light rail system caused grief for many. The research was undertaken in the broader context of Ontario's $30 billion investment in rapid transit systems province-wide. The publication coincides with an uptick in resistance to shift, London's $560 million plus rapid transit project. Quote, conflict is generally rooted in disagreement about local priorities or disappointment in the process rather than in opposition to transit itself, the study says. End quote. I, I totally disagree with that study's conclusion that the process is the problem, not the transit itself. Yeah, the process is a problem. I'm not saying that because there is no process. But the transit itself is the problem. Now, many of you have probably heard me on other talk shows, either as a caller or a guest, where I've been openly advocating making London's downtown more like it used to be, quote-unquote. People think I want to go back into the past, which is nonsense. But that was when the city was alive and active. 
A downtown, I believe, has to be accessible to cars. You have to have parking for those cars. And I don't think either of those things is incompatible with creating a people place. In fact, I think it should be clear to everyone that both of those things are a necessary element in the creation and maintenance of a so-called people place. Okay, right here. Great. Okay, you, a, you can get the front. Give you a good tour of Portland. Oh boy, good. I like the front. Well, this is Southeast Portland. Oh yeah? Jesus. Yeah. A lot of people on bikes everywhere, right? Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of lot of bikes. It doesn't remind me of any other city that I've ever worked in or been to. For instance, I was the comptroller in uh, Dallas, you see. They had a lot of traffic there. Uh-huh. There's a car. This is suburban sprawl. Suburban sprawl is the houses and the shops that feed them, that supply them, but you can't walk from one to the other. Regardless of the proximity, you can't walk from the closest house to the closest shop, even though that's a one-minute walk. Everybody has to get in a car, go out to the collector, take up capacity, find the shop, and create yet another patch of asphalt, of which there are four for every car in the suburb. By the way, the cars are nice. Don't attack the cars. They're nice. They're super. They only become negative because of the asphalt they stupidly create and the trips that they're stupidly made to take. The cars are wonderful, exactly like in the TV ads. Short little trips in beautiful European plazas or long-distance trips in the, in the landscape. If any TV ad actually showed how a car is actually used in Canada, nobody would ever buy a car. Because it would be just to be in traffic and in miserable parking lots. The new urbanists adore cars. It is a mistake, it is a mistake. What we want to do, we want to allow, to give the, not to ban them, we always provide parking. The new, in America, we're not punitive. You can't just say, you shall not have a car, or a, a car, let alone a car. You shall not have a parking place. That's ridiculous. We provide all the parking places necessary, but we allow the option of walking. Okay? And that's why it is so easy to swallow. That is what's so market-oriented. Why would you want to drive to that very short destination when you can walk, and the walk is interesting, safe, and rewarding at the end? Right? Why would you not take transit when you can walk to it? Why would you take a car and then park and do an intermodal change to take transit? You have to walk to transit. You can't drive to transit. Once people get in the car, they tend to continue driving. Right? All of these things are well known. In the suburb, everybody drives. about people here to be honest with you it seems like everybody's just lost in a, a dream world one thing your airport is like only it's 20 minutes to and from that's not how cities are you know cities are like you got to go like an hour and a half to get to the airport I mean I'm concerned because I have to answer to my temp agency and I'm trying to turn this into a job you know some people that suffer specific people that suffer or benefit from traditional urbanism. Police departments benefit. This is one of the great hopeful signs or hopeful uh, interventions in police practice, which is the patrolman on the beat. Washington and New York have instituted this. 
instead of responding to crime in patrol cars, policemen are assigned several city blocks and they walk it and they get to know the people and they can tell that they, they, they're able to identify crime before it happens. This can't be done in cul-de-sacs. It's actually technically impossible to do this. <laughs> Other people who suffer, senior citizens. Florida is full of people who have gone to retire in Florida in suburban neighborhoods or in golf course communities. What they don't realize is that, a, is that they need to re-retire. Because what happens is that as soon as they lose their driver's license, which happens when their eyes go bad, not when their minds go bad or when they get physically in bad shape, but when their eyes go bad, they can no longer lead an independent existence. And they do two things. They either go back to New Jersey, there's a fantastic out-migration from Florida, where they go back to where they started, or they go into specialized retirement communities, which are dreadful places usually, where everything is taken care of. Wherever traditional neighborhoods exist, Gentlemen like this one can get to be very, very old and still live independently because they can get to their daily needs by walking. The seniors suffer and they really, they don't properly identify. Other people who suffer, and these might be the greatest sufferers of all, are kids. Now this is unexpected because people move to the suburbs thinking that it's going to be good for their kids. In fact, it is good for their kids to have a house and a lot. What's not good is that the kids can't get anywhere without being driven by parents everything they need. You give your kid an allowance, the kid has to beg to be driven somewhere to spend it. The kids are delivered to the house at three o'clock in the afternoon by the school bus. If you don't want them warehoused in front of the television set, you need one or another of the parent needs to become a chauffeur. That has been the case with my sister in Miami. She was a journalist. She had two children. For the last eight years, she has been a chauffeur. That has been her profession. On weekends, they call parents, parents call each other to arrange for baseball games. And they have to put up with watching the baseball game for two hours so they can drive the kid back and so forth. Whatever happened to the system of the kid walking down to the school and just, you know, picking up a bat and playing baseball? The kids are completely incapacitated as independent beings in suburban conditions. Many people grew up in neighborhoods like this, where kids in neighborhoods, there's still a great memory in the United States of that. And they come up to me after the lectures and they confirm that it was wonderful when in fact they could get to school, they could get to the corner store, they could get to the movies. That is quickly disappearing. And there are kids that were actually, um, that led two lives, that grew up in a neighborhood and then at 13 or 14 they were taken out to the suburbs and they come to me and say, now I understand why I became an unhappy person at 14. <laughs> it wasn't puberty, it was the inability to actually have any, have any freedom. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Be sure to visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample our timeless past broadcasts, all archived at no cost for your listening enjoyment and convenience. Wow, does that last comment by Dwani ever describe my own personal experience as a kid growing up in the city of London? <laughs> I grew up, oh, for the better part of a decade and a half, right by the railway tracks on Rectory Street in the city of London. But I was one of the lucky ones. I was already 16, 8 years old and had a car by the time our family moved from the traditional neighborhood there to the suburbs of the city of London, and I didn't lose my freedom as a consequence of having that car. But without the car, boy, I would have been completely felt isolated. 
you know, my immediate neighborhood had no amenities, a new neighborhood we moved into, you know, like close by stores, shopping centers, the roads in our subdivision were all curved, crescents, windy, you know, with all the houses all set back in various ways from the fronts of the streets. But when Duane described the picture of, quote, the kid walking down to the school, picking up a bat and playing baseball, end quote, that could have been me. In fact, it was me. You know, and I had a choice of two schools with yards within each walk, easy walking distance. I remember it was St. Mary's School on the one side, and Chesley Ave, I think, was the one on the other. The side streets themselves, in fact, were often used as our playground. We played street hockey, even baseball, and we all just moved aside if a neighbor had to pull out of his laneway or off the street or if another vehicle happened to pass through. Our neighborhood, the Hamilton Road Rectory Street area that I grew up in, if I, if I were to, to put a division on it, I'd say it was roughly between Adelaide and Egerton Street. Within that area, we had everything a community needed, you know, a grocery and shopping store, more than one actually, numerous variety stores, barber shops, theaters, a library. It was a Crouch Branch, I think it's still there. And, you know, where I was, I was within five-minute walk to the Western Fair, and only a few steps further would have taken me to Dundas Street and Rectory, where, if you looked at that area then, between Eggert and Adelaide, that stretch of Dundas was its own vibrant, active, successful downtown community. You did not feel isolated there. They had theaters, restaurants, news depot, Hudson's Bay department store, hardware stores, and always active life on the street. And why is that? because it naturally evolved and operated on the very principles that we hear Andres Duany articulate and promote. There was metered street parking, critical to the life of retail and commerce. But then came the city planners and the legislative monster <laughs> called a BIA, which we've talked about on the show. You know, that improvement area thing we talked about on show number 496? Well, the BIA wanted to turn it into a people place and get rid of all the cars parked on the street. So they did. <laughs> it worked. Not only that, they committed the sin of all sins, according to the traditional fundamental urbanism, and that was they put a winding back-and-forth street there. And what happened? The area's major businesses, particularly Hudson's, a huge anchor there, all went under, never to return again. It's not easy to get these people back, and nobody trusts the planners in the neighborhood when they try to fix something because they don't trust that they won't undo the fix later on. You're making a long-term investment. You don't want people changing your street every five and six years when you're planning in terms of 20, 30, and 50 years. It, uh, uh, hello? You know? And it was really fascinating to hear... Uh, Duani explained that the car is not the problem. It is all the unnecessary asphalt that's built. Now, now think about that. If that's really the truth, then isn't BRT an asphalt loser from the word go? <laughs> I mean, even if no vehicles were ever allowed to travel along it, it's a huge asphalt jungle. That's what it is. Now, uh, again from Andres Duani, he's about to introduce the concept of the transect. And this is not an arbitrary concept, nor are its six categories that define the environment. Just to review them very quickly for you before he gets into them, because it's good to know them in advance, hear the context of the conversation. He talks about the six settings of the transect, and that's various elements of the environment. For example, they go from T1 to T6. So T1 is natural, nature undisturbed. T2 is rural, 
T3 is suburban. T4 is general urban. T5 is urban center. And T6 is urban core. That would be the highest point of a building. And he points out that every city has a transect. And he, he's basically recommending that every city should make these transect areas as the foundation of their zoning restrictions. Now, these are not arbitrary categories, and their discovery has a history and a foundation of proven working principles of municipal growth and transit issues that go all the way back, to, believe it or not, to Thomas Jefferson. The proposition that I'm going to make is that there's a way to analyze nature that, if extended, can be used to analyze urbanism. And it's a tool called the transect. And it was discovered that habitats concatenated. Essentially what happens, you begin with the low wet areas and you end up with the granite tops of mountains. And you, you, know, you get algae down here and you get uh, uh, basically very, very little. Uh, what, are, what, what are the plants called that grow on rocks? Lichen. Okay, don't bring lichen to the beach, it doesn't work. And don't take algae up to the mountain, it doesn't work. But there was a, they both had a place. And so this concatenation of habitats, also called in its origins the valley section, was fundamental to environmentalists. So you get the habitat and you get the concatenation of habitats. Okay? And what we, the new urbanists, did about, I would say it's getting on 15 years ago, as the second generation of new urbanism, we came up with a diagram that begins with nature, okay, which is nature, natural, rural, suburban, general urban, urban center, and urban core. And we have different degrees of nature. Of course, natural is nature intact. The rural is nature tampered, but essentially open space. Suburban, you know what it is, etc. And there was a concatenation. We began to conceptualize different degrees of the natural and different degrees of the urban in appropriate relationships. The degree of open space required, the types of trees, etc. And what I'm going to discuss today is this as a basis of thinking. Because one of the things that is happening all over the United States, possibly all over Canada, certainly in Portland, is that the environmental assessment of the city is greening the city by naturalizing it. And what happened in Portland is this. When Portland realized that they, many things had gone wrong and they became militant, and I remember I went to a meeting and there were people literally raising their fists and saying, we will not stop till there's a woodland in every square and a trout stream or some kind of salmon stream by every road. And it was all about you know, daylighting creeks and bringing nature into the city. Don't use, don't put trees all in a row in a monospecies, bring the grasses that are natural and so forth. And there is a very marked tendency now to create density, high density, without urbanism. And high density without urbanism actually doesn't work. People are miscued. And let me just give you an example that is absolutely uh, almost a paradigmatic example. One of my friends lives in Portland where they wooded, they woodlanded, one of, the, one, of the, one of the woods, one of the squares. And you know what he says? I can't go in the morning because my dog is always picking up condoms. 
Cities need to be active and busy, or at least pretend to be. What is she doing? I am available for full-time work, and uh, I hope you'll agree with some of my ideas for your city, sir. Starting with coffee shops. These are going to be for drinking coffee only. That's not going to go real well. Forget no. the fake office and sitting there all day on the internet. It's really a waste of time. We need fewer bike lanes riding a bike to <laughs> work. Yeah, that's completely stupid. Let's use cabs, guys. That's... And more honking, too. And I would now want to make one proposition that is totally shocking to environmentalists. Where does the theory come from that urbanism has to be contiguous? That the city simply grows by accretion like a stain? Whatever happened to the garden city idea, so strong that at some point the city stops and then you establish new settlements, right? So that people, so that there are strong edges and that people don't get quite so far from nature. You know, there's somehow a proposition. It used to be, I grew up, in, in my schooling, was about cities that were finite, that you stopped them and then you found the new cities. That's Leo Creer's theory, that's Ebenezer Howard's theory, that's Elil Saarinen's theory. And then suddenly I turn around and the environmentalists have gotten themselves, probably because of Portland, in some kind of funk that everything has to be within the urban boundary and then the ink blot just keeps growing. I don't think, I think that even that model should actually be questioned. And somebody asked me, speak about the urban edge. One of the greatest, great confusions is when you, because our transit diagram is in order from rural to urban, everybody thinks that towns have to be like egg yolks, like fried eggs, right? With a, the center high and then feathering down into nature. That's just the diagram. Once you establish the zoning codes, Every element, by the way, remember I'm talking about lights, landscaping, setbacks, densities, uses, curbs, everything. Everything in each of these is prepackaged. You can actually put them in radical juxtaposition. You can put T3 next to T6. You can put T5 next to T2. In other words, you can have radical juxtapositions that are very exciting. Look at how exciting that is. You know why Central Park is the most exciting park in America? Why? Olmsted did 200 of them. 200 parks, some of them even more skillful than Central Park. What's exciting about Central Park is you have T6 in super adjacency to T2. And it's fantastic. Now, you go to Kentucky or you go to New Orleans and they'll say, we have an even larger Olmsted Park. By the way, why hasn't anyone noticed? Because next to the Kentucky Park are houses. You don't get any, anybody can see a house. You know, a house next to, next to a park, hey, what's so, what's so memorable about that? It's okay, but it's only these radical juxtapositions. One of the most exciting things you can do. You see, what I'm speaking about here is developing a vocabulary in which the planner can actually do masterful, radical things. One other aspect that I think is very important and very much to the point of what's happening here in Vancouver, there's a densification program occurring. This city in many of its reports, not just one, is slated to densify. How is that going to be done gracefully and why are people so terrified? The people in the single family neighborhoods are terrified. They're terrified 
that they're going to lose value. They're terrified of their neighbor, of the house becoming a quadruplex or a sixplex or a motel. God knows what horrible things can happen. You know why they're terrified? Because they have reason to be terrified. Because all we've had 30 years of people, of, of codes that are too imprecise and government that cannot be trusted allowing incompatible buildings to occur in single-family neighborhoods and eventually that becomes hardwired in the society and people hate change. By the way, people before the 1950s loved change. Change, great. Get me the future, I can't wait. Now most people are terrified of the future. California is so against growth because they've seen the future and they don't like it. But it all has to do with bad planning. Now, among the things that are important about urbanism is to move successionally. Now, what's that? In nature, there's succession. Here's a grass, shrub, young forest, even-aged forest, and old-growth forest, which is called the climax, the climax forest. This is perfectly analogous in urbanism. In urbanism, let's take Manhattan. If you look at a series of lithographs of Manhattan over the century, the original Manhattan, the Dutch Manhattan, was exactly like a current Latin American shanty town. Mud huts, bad drainage, pigs on the street, the whole thing, you know? Urinals dumping, you know? Night soil to the street, just like Latin America, possibly worse. And exactly the same layout that had the shacks got brick houses, and the brick houses got five-story apartment buildings that then became 20-story stone apartment buildings that then became 40-story skyscrapers that then became the World Trade Center at 100 stories on exactly the same chassis. Urbanism has an ability to grow and densify and mature just like nature. But suburbia does not. When you look at suburbia, when you look at a strip shopping center, do you think that can densify? Uh-uh. It's either doing well or dead. Do you think a suburban subdivision ever wants to move on to the next? Do you think they look forward to becoming denser? No, everybody's terrified. Suburbia is conceived to stasis. It's like getting an insect and putting it in plexiglass. Everything about it is to prevent it changing, including, by the way, the Homeowners Association codes. And that's why this city cannot densify except with the greatest difficulty because it wasn't coded properly to be successful. And by the way, something about old growth forest that's so interesting, that old growth forest is climax. Remember I called it? You know when climax is? Climax is when you, when, when you decide that the city has reached a peak of perfection that you want to put a preservation order on it. For example, the, 40, the 100 blocks of the Art Deco district in Miami Beach, you know, the 100 blocks of the of the New Orleans uh, French Quarter. No one wants to keep, that shouldn't be successional. Charleston shouldn't be successional. It's set. But you should not have a preservation order when you haven't matured. By now you might have figured out that the title of Duani's presentation, On the Edge, refers to the edge of a city, which we no longer even think of as having an edge anymore, do we really? You know, an urban edge, a limit an end to suburban sprawl, and a solution to natural and urban growth not being in conflict anymore. 
course, this is considered traditional urbanism. And when Duani speaks about planning, he's really talking about municipal planning of public spaces, not about private property per se, even though private property within that space is, is affected. Now, he sees himself as a member of the School of New Urbanists, which to most people would be classical urbanism. I found it very fascinating when Duani suggested that we should develop a vocabulary in which to discuss the issues of urban planning. You know, he's speaking directly to epistemology, isn't he? Here again, we see the importance of using the right words to describe the right concepts. Constantly changing terms like LRT, BRT, rapid transit, you know, these are created to confuse the issue. To say nothing of changing a term like the BIA, which means business improvement area, a government body, to London Downtown Business Association, which it distinctly is not. It's not an association. We've been through all that. These are how the words are just being twisted in, in, in a way to make you not understand who the players are. Now, Duani has offered for consideration, for our consideration, a philosophy, one that relates to urban planning and integrating human growth with nature's growth. Whether you find yourself agreeing with it or not, <laughs> you know, at least it offers a starting point from which to think about the issue and from which to compare differing options. So he's thinking, you know, using transect as a basis of thinking. It would certainly solve a number of problems, especially this one that I saw arising out of all this politicization of the process, which people think is the process. We should politicize it. No, 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 no. You don't want to go there. Listen to this. This is from Hank Danizowski of the London Free Press, who wrote on April 7th of this year this following article with the heading, Speaking Up for Downtowners. And it refers to a new group formed, People of Downtown London aims to represent residents of the city's growing core. And he writes, Almost every neighborhood in the city has some sort of community group to defend its interests. A new group called People of Downtown London started about eight months ago. It was originally called the London Downtown Community Association, but the name was changed to emphasize representation of downtown residents. People of Downtown London has joined the London's Urban League. Wes Kinghorn, president of the Urban League of London, uh, said the People of Downtown London is a welcome addition to the umbrella organization that includes 25 neighborhood groups. There was a big hole down there, he says. The people of Downtown were not represented, and now they are. Downtown London represents business owners. Manager Jeanette McDonald said Downtown residents need to have their interests represented too, end quote. You see the problem here? <laughs> You've got all these new little collectives forming. There are, nobody's an individual anymore. Everybody has to form a group to fight the other groups. And this fragmenting of interests into special interest groups is symptomatic of the disintegration of community. It's not about getting involved and getting involved in the process. It's the exact opposite. It puts everybody into conflict. That's not community participation. The harmony of clear rules and rational municipal planning, you know, does not play to the political interest of creating conflict. They don't want that kind of harmony. It's the conflict of which politics is made. You have a conflict, you've got a political issue. 
but we don't need to go around creating more conflicts and competing interests at taxpayers' expense. Isn't that, isn't that just a ridiculous thing to be doing? So this whole BRT thing, as I wrote in our blog post last week, is a bus racket tactic. Here's where we are today. You know, thanks to a growing public outcry against the concept, London residents have been given this, you know, brief political reprieve to downshift the speed of the city's planned shift to bus rapid transit. Now, the city, I think, is really only cooperating on this, you know, in the hope of that the opposition will have more time to accept the facts about the city's own plans while making it appear like some kind of democratic process is taking place. After all, if everybody gets a voice, that's what democracy is about, right? Having a voice. <laughs> no, it's not. But instead of allowing such a process, Londoners have been told that shift happens, quote-unquote. I can't believe they picked that term, because the meaning behind the twist in that expression is clear. Neither the electorate's consent or nor a consensus is a factor to shift. And so I think that's why we're seeing more and more Londoners objecting to BRT. That's just one of the reasons. The real reason, of course, is the nature of the plan itself. And it's to this that I think that the city planners and city hall are being willfully blind. You know, they keep saying it's about the process. It's not really about the BRT plan. I'm sorry, it's about the BRT plan. And so instead what they do is they offer this crocodile apology to Londoners, you know, saying, well, we did a poor job of communicating. That's not the problem. <laughs> you know, what they're going to do is to resolve their shortcoming in communications, the BRT planners will now use this downshift time to present Londoners with the facts about BRT, you know, quote-unquote facts, and to dispel all the misinformation being spread by BRT opponents. You know, folks like me. just wanted to close off with a little humorous story that might put this into perspective. A little silly story. It goes like this, and I quote, a tourist from the East Coast turned up at a big cattle ranch in Montana and asked the owner what he called this bread. Well, our family had quite a fight about that, admitted the rancher. We finally ended up trying to please everybody. So the name of this here place is the Triple X Lucky 7 Lazy Jane Brent U Twin Peaks Diamondback Crooked Creek Ranch. Wow, that's some handle, chuckled the visitor, but where are all the cattle? Ain't none, sighed the Granger. Not one of them darn critters survived the branding. <laughs> and that's what can happen when you give community planners the final say in running the ranch. Unintended consequences. You know, the lesson about rapid transit here is that in ostensibly building a system to get people from A to B, the system has itself destroyed both destinations. <laughs> you see the, see the joke? So instead of giving so much power to city planners, we should learn to just grid and bear it. The unplanned order that results from the tried-and-true grid system and the idea of transect puts the chaos that can result from official planning into a proper perspective. If nothing else, this is a great starting point from which to consider one's options. Now, we've only scratched the surface of this issue, but like cities should... Our weekly broadcast also has an edge. It's called a time limit, and we are rapidly transiting towards that edge. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
You know, there's half a dozen landscape architects in this continent that are absolute masters of doing whatever they want and pulling it off. But a code is not about genius. Okay, you do not test the code with a genius. You test the code with an incompetent. <laughs> and in fact, you test the code with a rather energetic and confident incompetent. 